1: greatly concerns me where the field has
2: been going. I feel like what is happening is unethical and irresponsible um, in some places.
0: Laura Edwards-Leeper was the first psychologist at the first major youth gender clinic in the U.S. at Boston Children's Hospital. She says she has helped hundreds of teens and young adults transition successfully after a comprehensive assessment. Do you have conversations with your colleagues about this whole area of accepting what young people are saying too readily?
1: Yes. Everyone is very scared to speak up because we're afraid of not being seen as being affirming or being supportive of these young people or doing something to hurt the trans community. But even some of the providers are trans
0: themselves and share these concerns.
1: That's from 60 Minutes Sunday night.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'll bring that up for a couple of reasons. First of all, we got this email from uh Al Anonymous who says I just finished listening to your segment about young girls and their confusion with their gender, transgender thing and actually the one of the focuses one of the foci of the stories of the story on sixty minutes was all the people who regret it. Who, who get various uh, hormone injections or the surgeries or whatever and realize, wait a minute. No, I'm a dude. I was just an unhappy dude. And mm-hmm. now I'm a r- unhappy to the point of being s- suicidal f- dude who doesn't have my parts anymore.
1: Well, that's why Glad is slamming 60 minutes for their shameful story on transgender youth.
0: Yeah, that's right. If you so much as tap the brakes and say, hey, we need to be careful because this is a serious thing, that makes you a hater. That makes you a transphobe. Glad questioned
1: the timing of the piece, noting that 30 states have now introduced bills targeting the trans community. Well, you, you could use the word targeting the trans community because it's literally true, but they're targeting the trans community because they're afraid that way too many young people are getting uh, all kinds of changes their bodies done without thinking this through.
0: And we uh, mentioned the the book Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier, um, in which she points out that until a few years ago, gender dysphoria was vanishingly rare, typically found in less than 0.01% of the population, right. emerged in early childhood, afflicted males almost exclusively, and almost always took care of itself.
1: I did not know it it was a male thing almost exclusively. That's mm-hmm. interesting.
0: But today, whole groups of female friends in colleges, high schools, even middle schools across the country are coming out as transgender. These are girls who had never experienced any discomfort in their biological sex until they heard a coming-out story from a speaker at a school assembly or discovered the Internet community of trans influencers, et cetera, et cetera. We got this note from Al. Uh, my daughter is 11, and in her group of friends, she's considered the oddball. Why? She's a girl who identifies as a girl, and she likes boys. That makes her weird in her 11-year-old friend group. 11-year-olds? In this group of five girls, two think they want to be trans, and all of them except my daughter are pansexual or bisexual. Boy,
1: this subject has not come up. My son's 11. It's, I'm pretty, pretty sure they're not talking about any of this stuff at all. I suppose it depends on the crowd you run with.
0: Well, yeah, that's part of it, and the other point of it, uh, and the point of Abigail Schreier's book is, it's become a craze among young women, and there are clusters of it. It's almost like a suicide cluster, and if uh-huh. you know anything about the psychology of adolescent girls, especially, they are incredibly prone to cluster behavior, um, his sense of belonging, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, he points out, I don't live in some liberal enclave. He says where he lives. I'm 40, and as a 10-year-old in the Bay Area, I don't ever remember hearing a single boy or girl questioning whether they were actually a boy or a girl. We had no idea what it meant to be pansexual, even now, I had to duck-duck-go it. I never in my life thought I'd have to worry about my daughter being accepted because she's a girl who likes boys. Wild. Yeah, that is Wild. It is, it has become a craze. It's a, it's a way to show you're progressive and virtuous and the rest of it. And you get enormous support. I saw it when my oldest daughter was going to school. She gained, she joined some sort of gay straight alliance. And if somebody turned out to be gay, it was not, Oh, okay. It was a cause for celebration. It was a great thing. It was an exciting thing. And I just, I think again, again. Don't hate on anybody, but tap the brakes.
1: Got a Bitcoin story. Got to have a Bitcoin story every day, right? Absolutely. I think it's a rule now. I didn't know about the infamous Bitcoin pizza guy. Oh, yeah. He's a big deal. Yeah. So he got uh paid in Bitcoins at one time. They were 10,000 Bitcoins worth $41. And this was back in 2010. He uh, spent the Bitcoin on travel. Um, if he had held on to that Bitcoin, it would be worth $365 million. Hope you enjoyed your trip.
0: Wow. Holy
1: crap. He said he has no regrets. Well, okay, maybe that helps you get through the day. I'm saying you have no regrets. I mean, it, it, it doesn't hurt to say, you know, I wish I'd
0: held on to it. Obviously, it would have changed my life. Maybe and I could spent
1: half on travel. <laughs> <laughs> sure.
0: Hung on to a tenth of it, yeah. which would have yielded me $36 million? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. If you'd have had uh, held
1: on to 10% of it,
0: you'd have insane wealth. Of course, what's the alternative? He hangs on to those regrets and it makes him completely insane Not, and ruins his life. No, 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 let no, it no, go. No, no, no no no. No, 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 no. Let
1: it go. You don't need to let go it go.
0: That far, but uh, to, to claim, no, I don't regret
1: it at all. Well, yeah, obviously if I could do it over again, I would do it differently. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Ah, uh, uh, which kind of gets us into the whole stages of grief thing, uh, which we got on yesterday, which is a damned interesting topic because everybody grieves at some point, you know, and there's different levels of it. I've had examples of people grieving for a pet that passed or somebody who had their house burned down from a wildfire. Obviously deads in the family and that sort of stuff. Mine was around divorce. Um, uh, but here's a therapist saying, um, I have doubted the Kubler-Ross model of grief several times, but it seems to ring true for patients again and again. That was your argument yesterday. So a lot of science says that the stages of grief, anger, depression, bargaining, whatever it is, uh, is eating one of them because I uh, ate an entire mm-hmm. pie, so that was one of them. But oh the, uh, a lot of studies show that, that, that that's not real and not helpful for, for grief or has never been proven in a lab setting. But as Joe pointed out, if everybody hears those and thinks, "Yeah, that makes sense to me," and it becomes a worldwide phenomenon as it
0: has for a half a century, there's got to be something to it. Well, and Dr. Kubler-Ross as you pointed out yesterday said it's been misinterpreted. People, it's not in that
1: order and it's not one at a time and Right. We got this. So. Divorce, I'm sorry you're going through that. I went through my divorce last year during the pandemic. The stages of grief are 100% accurate. The pain I felt, worst pain in my life, next to losing my father as a teenager. Honestly, it's beyond painful. I pray for you and your family that it's a fairly easy process, but the stages of grief made sense to me. Well, if they make sense to you, then they make sense to you, and I think they make sense to me. So, okay, scientists who say they aren't real, I think human beings are saying they are real.
0: Yeah, and and we I think we agreed yesterday that it's not stages, and Dr. Uh, Kubler-Ross Stages it's the wrong word. Yeah, the aspects of grief.
1: The, uh, yeah. Those, yeah. And you bounce in and out of them. They're like whack-a-mole. Mm. You get the, uh, the the denial beat back down, but then the bargaining comes back, and then just, you know. Is the headline here, scientists don't understand emotions? Because I, I, I feel like when <laughs> it's phrased be. that way, it's less surprising. May, it be. hasn't been proved in a lab setting? How exactly are you going to run that experiment? I think the lab setting
0: is the right All planet... right, now it's time to execute your mother, and then we'll see how it goes from here.
1: I think the lab of the planet Earth for 50 years in 40 languages around the world, I think that lab says that it's pretty accurate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I know my my dad and my late mom actually uh did a uh, led a class on grieving. They took it and then led it subsequently and and it was uh, you know, uh, the aspects of that are the people everybody goes through them yeah so it's it's good interesting stuff and, and just knowing what i'm going through is normal and it's okay that i'm going through it seems to be really helpful for people
1: yeah yeah oh yeah this is not weird this i'm supposed to feel this way is a right. really good part of feeling bad it's normal to feel this way armstrong and getty
0: armstrong and getty this is the best of armstrong and getty so Dale Mortensen is imagining critical race theory standing at the podium and 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 introducing itself to the school board students parents teachers and anything close. Uh it's so I'll just read part of it to you. It's it's brilliant. And again, trust me, the whole thing is worth it. Hi, my, my real name is Critical Race Theory. I have presented myself to many well-known communities using words you think you know, like equity or inclusion. So if it puts you at ease, just call me equity until we get to know each other better. I'm here to institute an all-inclusive anti-racist educational program. I'm sure that you all have a common understanding of the term racist. And if you have questions about this new term, I'll explain what that actually means once we have the program in place. Uh You're good. You're good people. And I know all of you want to be anti-racist. So let's begin. Now, I do understand that my name has the word theory in it, but don't pay too much attention to that, as we will be teaching CRT is truth. Besides, theory and truth both start with a T, so later we can just use them interchangeably and eventually make a permanent name change. I'm going to ask you to please not refer to me using the terms Marxist, Maoist, or Stalinist. CRT is very different from those ideologies. We won't be dividing your children or the citizens of your country by class. We will be using race instead. But enough about words and names. Let's get to the program. That's good stuff. Oh, it is. It is. Um... Our first order of business will be to install a very comprehensive equity program. We here at CRT like the word equity because it sounds so much like equality or the value in your home, and that feels good. But under equality, the law or equality of opportunity doesn't really work for us here at CRT. Those equalities have been worked on for 225 years through struggle, amendments to the Constitution, war, movements, civil rights laws, rules, regulations, trillions of dollars spent, and yet there are still individuals that succeed or fail more often than others in every single school or business in America. Then they make the the point that if you get um, uh, virtually identical students from a limited number of homes of the same races, socioeconomics, etc., they don't have equal outcomes. But that's very uncomfortable to discuss, so we'd really prefer that we don't discuss that at all. But they say that uh, CRT has many goals, but here are a couple of CRT's favorites from the dozens of word salad goals selection. One, to ensure that the predictability of student outcomes do not correlate with any social or cultural factor. And two, to ensure that every student is embraced in their full identity, in a community of belonging that empowers them to flourish both academically and socio-emotionally. But then they point out that your kid is no longer your kid. Your kid is your kid's race, and that's all they are. Maybe I'll share a little bit more of this with you in a in a bit, but it's good. It's devastating. And
1: Tahisi Coates on the uh, CBS our early show um talking about critical race theory.
2: Yeah, so our critical race theory is is a is a is, a, is a, uh, a framework uh for understanding uh American history and American life. Uh and and the basic premise of it starts from the idea. That racism is endemic to, to this society now you can agree with that or, or disagree with that you know there are all sorts of you know historical theories or theories that you know can be applied you know to a law etc but to ban it i just really really want to focus on that you know it's not what your opinion of it is the idea that it should be banned from teaching at all or banned from discussion or banned from education or pushed out of the public square I just, you know, I, I think that's that's a huge problem. I think whatever your opinion of those ideas are, like, you should find that problematic. There are many notions and ideas in America that I totally and completely disagree with. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't ban them. There are a lot of people who I think are, are, are you know, are dead, dead wrong. You know, I wouldn't, you know, move for schools and for universities to ban a discussion of those ideas. I just think that's a that's a that's a totally, totally different level.
1: Um, uh, did Never, never get Tim Sandford started on Tahisi Coates as we have before, because he'll go on for an hour about how much he hates the guy and how dangerous he is for the country and his views of the world um but uh, as to what he just said there joe
0: well i appreciated him expressing that point of view but it is hilarious it, it reminds me very much of a certain fundamentalist islamist countries uh, where they insisted on having uh, democracy and they got rid of the dictator and they voted in islamist uh, totalitarianism <laughs> they use democracy to end democracy and the thing about critical race theory and i just love him using the term problematic because the more you learn about this you realize that's one of the weapons they have they just they they pick apart they parse what you've said and they find an individual word a phrase they deliberately misinterpret it claim that it proves your racism a uh, racist rather uh they then they say it's problematic and the rest it's just it's absolute garbage but what reminds me of the the Islamist thing is that he's saying no, it's it's open to market of ideas, right? Just free discussion of ideas, which everybody who's sane agrees with. But once you get the critical race theory into your schools, for instance, you dare not dissent. Any of you tried to speak up against it at your uh, re-education camp for your job there? How'd that go? Any of you teachers who hate this stuff when you brought it up during the training session? Whoa, this is racist. How'd that go for you?
1: That's a good Mott Bailey argument he's presenting there. So his, uh, which one is your castle? The Bailey? Um,
0: the mot is the castle. The mot is and the, the castle. The Bailey is the the like the courtyard. Okay, so areas. his
1: his mot is uh, we want to teach different views in school. Okay, yeah, I can't disagree with that. And the view I want to teach is that we're a systemically racist country through and through, and white supremacy dominates every aspect of the country. Right. And then if you challenge on that, you go back to your mot. Well, I thought we were going to discuss
0: everything. I thought we were going to have a free exchange of ideas. Yeah, you're teaching a sick racist philosophy to kids. It's become part of a craze. And I swear the educational establishment is more prone to falling for crazes than the average 13 year old. It's unbelievable. And this one's particularly evil. But Dale wrote us this long piece and, and it's, it's so good though. It's, it's critical race theory introducing itself and it mentions some of the goals and. And Critical Race Theory, speaking for itself, says, as you read this, parents, board members, and teachers may have a few questions that come to mind, such as, how will you ensure or enforce these goals? Isn't correlation similar to coincidence, or wouldn't it be better to examine causation, which requires empirical evidence? Are outcomes, grades, or something else? What are the social or cultural factors? Uh, how will you ensure or measure whether a student is being embraced in their full identity or is flourishing? Does academically mean grades, learning targets, standards? What does it mean? Well, I was actually hoping that you'd be lulled by the virtuousness and empathy emoting from our goals, but I'll try to answer these questions. Truthfully, many of these concepts are impossible to measure and so nebulous that you will need to open a Department of Equity and Inclusion to do the enforcement and interpreting for you. This new administrative arm will need to be fully staffed at the district, school, and possible subject level. Under their watchful eye, they will interpret whether all goals are being met in every school, class, Classroom And for every student student should any student feel not embraced in their full identity, blah, blah, blah. They can file an anonymous complaint online and one of our highly trained CRT specialists will spring into action, which, by the way, is exactly what's happening on college campuses that have. I mean, it was I think it was Ohio State University had 50 some different deans and under deans and associate assistant deans of equity and inclusion, blah, blah, blah. And uh, anonymous complaints abound, and God help the professor who gets complained about. We've all heard those stories. I'm telling you, my friends, you have to fight this stuff. It is is far more dangerous than China in terms of an existential threat to this country. Wow, that's a statement. End of rant. Well, China's not going to wipe us off the face of the earth unless they decide to go full nuke, which would be insane. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. So I've talked about
1: this book before. Um, it's called The 100-Year Marathon, written by Michael Pillsbury. You might not recognize that name, but he has been involved in the U.S. government and dealings with China going way back to Nixon. In fact, he was uh, a big deal in terms of the, quote, opening of China.
0: So, okay, so he's not like a writer. He was a diplomat, a guy involved yeah. in opening China. Yeah, absolutely. And so
1: the opening of China, which is that phrase, has been used my entire adult life. And the and the way the politics and the history of this has been written is the United States under the tutelage of Richard Nixon, who was who was a very smart geopolitical strategist, but he found a way to negotiate and this and that with Henry Kissinger's help. We found a way to figure out psychologically how we could get into China somehow and finally go over there and talk to somebody and open China. Nixon opened China and it was good for the world. Well, what Michael Pillsbury now says, and that's what he believed was going on all these years, he has since determined... That, no, they uh, they opened the door and figured out a way to get us to come in and go along with their plans and build up their country, their economy, and their military so that they could overtake us. It was all a ruse. To bilk the West while
0: remaining a communist totalitarian state. (laughs) From
1: the beginning, it was uh, from day one, the whole Nixon going to China thing wasn't an amazing political uh, magic trick by the brilliant U.S. politician. No, it was China bringing us in to take advantage of us. Wow. And this Michael Pillsbury wrote this book, The 100-Year Marathon, that since uh, the the start of the communist-led uh, country in 1949, they've had a 100-year plan to replace us as the superpower in the world. And they're screaming that direction, all with our help. I'll read uh, just one of the reviews of the book before I get into the story that I want to tell you that I think is so damned interesting. Um, and I hope you do too. Um Pillsbury explains how the US government has helped, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes deliberately, to make the China dream come true, that is of replacing the US as the world superpower. And he calls for the United States to implement a new, more competitive strategy. China's ambition to become the world's dominant power has been there all along, virtually burned into the country's cultural DNA. I don't I don't think we fully understand what that means. Um, the FBI director said it very well last year, Director Ray, that it, they have a whole of society goal. Whether you're a child, whether you're a construction worker, whether you're a member of the Communist Party, the whole point of being Chinese is to become the dominant force in the world.
0: I think if we got knocked down hard off of our pedestal, we would understand that feeling,
1: anyway. So, I am going to read this long story from uh, the opening of this book, "The 100 drew Marathon." And um,
0: I will be doing interpretive dance uh, to interpret the story. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's radio, but take my word.
1: He opens with an old Chinese saying that is, "Deceive the heavens to cross the ocean." That is what they have been doing for quite some time. At noon on November 30th, 2012, beneath a clear late autumn sky, Wayne Clow, the white-bearded, affable secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, appeared before a collection of cameras and microphones. As he spoke, a cold wind blew across the National Mall. The audience stood bundled in their overcoats as representative of S- Secretary of State Hillary Clinton held aloft a mysterious gold medal. So you got Hillary as Secretary of State holding up the gold medal for all to see. It's the Smithsonian's honored guest that day. That was the famed Chinese artist Kai, who I don't really know, but doesn't matter, who had been feted the night before at a Tony Gala inside the gallery of the Smithsonian's National Museum of Asian Art, an event co-hosted, um, no, 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 that's an aside, some 400 guests, among them House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, um bunch of other uh, business types, the 74-year-old widow of the Shah of Iran. They all clinked glasses to celebrate the Chinese-American relationship and to catch a glimpse of Kai, this amazing artist who had won international acclaim for his awe-aspiring fireworks display during the opening ceremony of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Oh, right. I think we yeah. all remember that, and it yeah. was amazing. And that was one of the first hints in retrospect that this country is for real. It's
0: crazy what you can pull off with
1: slave labor and gazillions of dollars in uh, all kinds of breaks that the world gives you. Kai was known to celebrate Chinese symbols with performance art and had once used a lighted fires to extend the Great Wall by 10 kilometers so it could be better seen from space. <laughs> the gala raised more than a million dollars for the Smithsonian and made the social pages of various newspapers and magazines. The following day, as Kai was introduced, he was dressed in a Western-style suit, gray overcoat and orange-red scarf. A trim, handsome man with graying hair, he looked out upon the mall and the subject of his latest piece of performance art, a four-story tall Christmas tree decorated with 2,000 explosive devices. As Kai twisted a handheld trigger, his audience watched the tree explode before their eyes, with thick black smoke emerging from the branches. Kai twisted the trigger again, and the tree exploded a second time, and then a third The five-minute display sent pine needles across the vast lawn in all directions and dense black smoke symbolizing China's invention of gunpowder billowing up the facade of the Smithsonian's red sandstone castle. It would take two months to clean up the debris and the residue (sighs) left by the explosion. Now here's Michael Pillsbury, the author, who understands what's going on, uh, explaining it. I don't know if any of the guests contemplated why they were watching a Chinese artist blow up a symbol of the Christian faith, in the middle of the nation's capital, less than a month before Christmas. In that moment, I'm not sure that even I appreciated the subversion of the gesture. I clapped along with the rest of the audience. Perhaps sensing the potential controversy, a museum spokesman said the work itself is not necessarily about Christmas. Indeed, the museum labeled Kai's performance simply explosive event, which, if one thinks about it, is not much more descriptive than what Kai called it on his own website, Black Christmas Tree. (laughs) Secretary Clinton's aide waved the gold medal for the press courtesy, and Kai smiled modestly. He had just been given the State Department's Medal of Arts, the first of its kind, which was presented to the artist by Clinton herself, along with $250,000, courtesy of the American taxpayer. Oh. The medal was awarded, she said, for the artist's contributions to the advancement of understanding in diplomacy. Kai seemed to agree with the sentiment. All artists are diplomats, he said. Sometimes art can do nothing that politics cannot. The point of all this is that China sent an artist over here, blew up a Christmas tree, the symbol of Christianity and everything that is American, a month before Christmas, and we all cheered it and gave him a check for a quarter million dollars and this award. That's how blind we've been
0: to what they are doing. Such childlike, I don't know, subservience, anxiousness to please. In retrospect, it's hard to believe it even happened. Yeah. It, you know, what? it reminds me a lot of Stockholm Syndrome. Just, there's a big mean guy, and you're really praying you'll stop being big and mean, and so you'll do anything, anything to please him, to be friends. Please, can't we be friends? Meanwhile, the mean guy is utterly premeditated and merciless. So, uh, Pillsbury writing again, I wanted to investigate Kai and his works
1: of art a little more closely after watching this. I didn't bother reading the English articles proclaiming Kai's genius, but rather what the Chinese were saying on various Mandarin language websites ah, yes about one of their most acclaimed citizens. Kai, it turned out, had quite a large following in China. He was and remains arguably the most popular artist in the entire country, and his fans are nationalists, and applauded him for blowing up Western symbols before a Western audience. Wow. He was doing that for a crowd back in China that understood exactly what he was doing. He was going right to Washington, D.C., the capital of the evil United States Empire, and blowing up their Christian symbol
0: in front of them while they applauded. Wow. Isn't that a wild? He walked into our house, took the dinner we served, smashed it in our face, and we thanked him for it and wrote him a check on the way out.
1: He talks about the various generals and admirals and, uh, and uh, government hardliners who praised what he did on uh, on websites. Wow, wow, we can be such suckers. I would say. I mean, you are. It, that's embarrassing. I, you know, it's the second time I've read it on the air. It embarrasses me that we're that stupid. Hillary Clinton holding up the medal. Isn't that fantastic? He just came to Washington D.C. and blew up a Christmas tree in our nation's capital right before Christmas. Isn't that fantastic? To show yeah. that we're a decadent society that
0: needs to be overtaken by China. Did she get that medal made at the same place she got the reset button made? Yes, yes, yes. It's you know, Harry, so crazy. How,
1: how do you get that blinded son- it'd, be, it'd be like if we'd had Osama bin Laden come blow up a
0: Christmas tree before Christmas. Right, right. Well, in spite of what some people will tell you the american people are a kind and open-hearted people generally speaking you're nice to us we want to be friends and and sometimes we're bad at it henry kissinger speaking of kissinger once said that america is like a big friendly dog we want to be friends but we're so big sometimes we wag our tail and we smash stuff or or I would say that anybody who offers us a hot dog immediately becomes our best friend. We're a Labrador retriever in a world where we really ought to be more of a a, a sheepdog, more territorial and protective. We just got suckered.
1: Uh, he writes in the book, which just came out, what, a year or two ago, even now, years later, Chinese bloggers are enjoying the spectacle of their hero, destroying a symbol of the Christian faith, only a stone's throw from the U.S. Capitol. The joke,
0: it appeared, is very much on us. Well, and our nation's elite thanked them for it.
1: Yeah, and he did a little research, and uh, it turns out that we did no investigation into this guy's background and his shtick. If anybody had spent even a couple of hours probably on the Internet Googling around, they'd have figured out, oh, his thing is he goes around the world destroying symbols of capitalism and Christianity to, uh, to bolster the argument for communist China.
0: You know, there is a little bit of truth, depending on who you're talking about, that there are some people on the right side of the aisle who can be xenophobic. Uh, it's an accusation that's thrown around way too often and way, way too casual, casually. But there's, you know, a shred of truth to it. I will tell you this, that was a, that incident you just described is a beautiful example of the left's xenophilia. If it is foreign, they embrace it. They love it. It's beautiful. It's important. It's vital. We must praise it. We must invite it. We must thank it. We can never ask any critical questions. It's a cult of xenophilia.
1: Let me read a couple of more of the, uh, the proverbs that he mentions in this book. Um, the ancient proverb that they believe in China is, cross the sea in full view. Or, in other words, hide in plain sight. It's one of the 36 stratagems, an essay from ancient Chinese folk folklore. All these stratagems are designed to defeat a more powerful opponent by using the opponent's own strength against him without him knowing he's even in a contest. And that's what China has been doing for decades. Wow, that's
0: exactly what's happening. And
1: we're just now kind of understanding that.
0: Yeah. Well, if there's an encouraging note, it's that it seems that uh, the awareness has come to the people, the media, the government, both parties. I think, I don't think the Biden administration will do anything nearly as humiliating and pathetic and and damn near suicidal as the Obama administration did. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of
1: Armstrong and Getty. Who's got a calculator? What's 1.3 billion divided by 17,000? 140. So they're, (laughs) because they're going to spend 1.3 billion dollars to fight the homeless situation in San Francisco. And the highest number that activists use is 17,000. The most recent city count was about 8,000. That seems like an awful lot of money to throw at 8,000 homeless people. I mean, there are too many homeless people. It's miserable to walk around San Francisco. Anybody who's done it knows there are way too many homeless people. But $1.3 billion? What's the math come out on that?
0: Los Angeles is committed to spending over a billion dollars on the homeless situation in L.A. as well. Just a quick show of hands, little uh, mini poll here. How many of you are against spending any money uh, to help homeless folks? to deal with them, including the mentally ill, those who can't take care of themselves, that sort of thing. Virtually nobody, right? Here's our point. Make the expenditures successful. Make them hold the spenders of the dollars accountable for actually solving problems and... Have your policy reflect reality, not what you're congratulated for saying there in your salons of power and your university campuses and among activists, not policies that make you feel good, policies that actually reflect reality. Did you do the math, John?
1: Yeah, I got about 76,000 per yeah, so if you use the highest number that activists come up with, it's about $76,000 per homeless person. If you use the city's number, which is 8,000, so roughly half, so it'd be twice as much money, you're gonna have about $150,000 per homeless person.
0: Well, that is probably appropriate because, I mean, for instance, LA will, uh, let you live in a wheelbarrow, but it costs $75,000 per wheelbarrow somehow in LA. <laughs> <laughs> anyway this is so interesting it was published originally in the denver post mike kaufman who is the mayor of aurora colorado uh describes that he and the mayor of denver and the mayor of lakewood which are all uh, cheek but there uh, wanted to develop a metro-wide approach to the growing regional problem of homelessness and he decided to go and be homeless for a few weeks actually He said, I'd never experienced life in an encampment or a shelter to better better understand the challenges and have more informed discussions about resolving them. (laughs) Imagine that. You'd never make it on the West Coast, you fool. So he decided to learn everything he could about it. He writes, during my experience, I presented myself as a homeless veteran. I am a veteran and stayed in one shelter in Aurora. Two shelters in Denver and in an encampment in the vicinity of Lincoln and Spear in downtown Denver, a town that Jack was uh, banned from for life. As I yes, saying. for urinating in a parking <laughs> lot. Yeah, well, you'd fit in these days. It's funny. You're just ahead of your time. Uh, To the credit of the shelters, writes the mayor, every time I went to a new one, I was asked if I wanted help from a menu of services ranging from mental health therapy to drug and alcohol counseling to job placement. I was impressed by the range of services offered to anyone wanting to improve their circumstances. In the shelters, I observed three categories of people experiencing homelessness. This is in the shelters now. The mentally ill the chronically homeless suffering from drug and alcohol addictions, and those displaced by economic circumstances who were finding work and using the shelter as a temporary means to save enough money to get back on their feet. In the encampments, the experience was entirely different. Okay, so let's move on from the folks in the shelters who you almost never see, and let's move on to what we have coldly called bum and junkie camps. What was surprising to me about the shelter population and the encampment inhabitants was that I found them to be two very distinct groups that never intersected. Yeah, I know. I know. I've I've, I've
1: got a friend who's a homeless and has been for years off and on. And that's one thing he said about The, the, the people refer to homeless like we're all one thing. He said there's there's multiple crowds that never interact.
0: The mayor writes, I never found a shelter person who had stayed in an encampment and an encampment inhabitant who had ever stayed in a shelter. The encampment inhabitants tended to be much younger than those in the shelters. Many of them reminded me of the countercultural hippie movement of the late 60s and 70s where dropping out of society and living in a communal setting with the common denominator being drug use defined their movement. Only for that generation, it was largely marijuana and hallucinogenic drugs. For the encampment generation today, the drug use is much more serious serious with the dominant drug being crystal methamphetamine it was common to see these young people shooting up or smoking meth in glass pipes i'm sure there's uh, some fentanyl working its way there too Um, uh, but back to the mayor's uh, uh, piece the advocates for the encampments want us to believe that the reasons why the encampment inhabitants never access shelters are because they are afraid of the congregate living arrangements during a pandemic or concerned about having their few possessions stolen, or fear for their safety. Nothing could be further from the truth. In the shelters, I always felt safe, I was always required to wear a mask, and was constantly reminded about social distancing, and I never had anything stolen from me. In the encampments, I never felt safe, no one ever wore a mask or even concerned themselves with social distancing, and I had a number of items stolen. The real reason why the encampment inhabitants refuse to access the shelters is simple. The shelters have rules. One rule in particular keeps the encampment inhabitants out of the shelters, and that rule is that drugs and drug use are prohibited. I know that my observations about the encampments hit a raw nerve with many of the so-called advocates for people experiencing homelessness because they did not comport with their narrative that these individuals are there through circumstances beyond their control and that the encampment lifestyle is not a choice. I disagree. My observations about the encampments have reinvigorated an important debate because, here you go, we will never be able to solve the problem of the encampments if we cannot first accurately describe the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Colorado can still handle reality. That's good. They haven't gone so blue yet that they're in unicorn land like certain other states. Good for you, Mike. Well done, sir.
1: So if the people in the tent under the overpass look like junkies to you, that's
0: because they're probably junkies. And I will continue to call them bum and junkie camps. They're not brave homeless people. They're junkies.